I'm going to read from Deuteronomy chapter 6. So um, listen to it and see what you think God might have to say to us through it. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the ordinances, that the Lord your God charged me to teach you to observe in the land that you are about to cross into and occupy, so that you and your children and your children's children may fear the Lord your God all the days of your life, and keep all his decrees and his commandments that I am commanding you, so that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe them diligently, so that it may go well with you, and so that you may multiply greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, as Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, has promised you. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh, our God, Yahweh alone. You shall love Yahweh, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your might. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children, and talk about them while you are at home and while you are away, when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. When Yahweh your God has brought you into the land which he swore to your ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, a land with fine, large cities that you did not build, houses filled with all sorts of goods that you did not fill, hewn cisterns that you did not hew, vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. And when you have eaten your fill, take care that you do not forget Yahweh, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Yahweh your God you shall fear, him you shall serve. By his name alone you shall swear. Do not follow other gods, any of the gods who are people of the people who are all around you, because Yahweh your God, who is present with you, is a jealous God. The anger of Yahweh your God would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you from the face of the earth. Do not put Yahweh your God to the test, as you tested him at Massah. You must diligently keep the commandments of Yahweh your God, and his decrees, and his statutes that he's commanded you. Do what is right and good in the sight of Yahweh, so that it may go well with you, and so that you may go in and occupy the good land that Yahweh swore to your ancestors to give you, thrusting out all your enemies from before you, as Yahweh has promised. When your children ask you in time to come, what is the meaning of the decrees and the statutes and the ordinances that Yahweh our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your children, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. But Yahweh brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Yahweh displayed for before our eyes great and awesome signs and wonders against Egypt, 
against Pharaoh and all his household. He brought us out from there in order to bring us in to give us the land that he promised on oath to our ancestors. Then Yahweh commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear Yahweh our God for our lasting good, so as to keep us alive, as is now the case. If we diligently observe this entire commandment before Yahweh our God, as he has commanded us, we will be in the right. Anything that strikes you about that? Teeming, you say? That's right, I was just checking. Yeah, teeming with you. Yeah, that's, yeah. Ni- that's a nice expression. Yeah. Just, you yeah. Know, it's he's concerned for their well being. Yeah, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's interesting, yeah, yeah. Reminds you that uh, it's instruction, that the word Torah means instruction, not just law, yeah, yeah. Um, somebody asked in their posting about whether this business about the laws on your forehead and so, so on is literal. Um, and uh, I'm not sure, because I, I think it could go either way. Um, if it's literal, though clearly it... It's, it only makes sense as the literal thing if it's also the outward expression of something internal so that the, um, the literal and the spiritual would kind of go together. Um, yeah. And somebody else asked in their posting about, was it really the case that families were responsible for all this teaching, not the community? Well, yeah, apparently. Interesting that, isn't it? It's almost converted me to homeschooling. Um, that the, uh, <laughs> well, I think it has. It's made me a lot more sympathetic. We don't really have homeschooling in, in England, so... Uh, I was a bit bemused by the homeschooling movement here, but I've come to be more appreciative of it because of this um, emphasis that you don't just get here, but elsewhere, and not least in Deuteronomy, uh, about um, the, the family as a context in which you um, discover the truth, which you're taught the truth. Yep. On your fridge. On my fridge. Yeah, that's the, it doesn't mention the fridge here, but um, you know, if it it would have done if it didn't know about fridges. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Along those lines of how forgetful we are, I think it's interesting how the concept of the young guy passage 
this, it's all this, okay. Once you go into the land and everything's gonna be different and all your needs are going to be met, don't forget, you know, it's like God is almost kind of throwing a little preemptive strike there. Mm, and say, okay, mm, this is what you're going to mm, want to do mm, when all of your physical needs are met. Mm, Make sure that you don't. And I think that particularly speaks to us. Mm. Yeah, oh yeah, sure. Yeah, thank you, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Though I think I almost um, changed fear to revere as I read it because uh, we, we have these two separate words for fear of a positive kind in the sense of revering and, and being awed by God and being reverent. And then fear as being afraid and being scared and being terrified. Uh, we, we've got two words, whereas Hebrew, uh, and for that matter, sometimes Greek in the New Testament, um, uses the same word for both. Um, and, um, and so it's not afraid of talking about being afraid of God in that, in that bad sense, but, but it also doesn't think there's a tension between, between loving and fearing in the revering sense, which for us would tend to be um, in tension with each other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's sing Break Thou the Bread of Life. Break Thou the Bread of Life, dear Lord, to me, as Thou didst break the loaves beside the sea. Beyond the sacred page I seek Thee, Lord. My spirit pants for Thee, O living Word. Bless Thou the truth, dear Lord, to me, to me, as Thou didst bless the bread by Galilee. Then shall all bondage cease, all fetters fall, and I shall find my peace, my all in all. Just a minute. Now, I've just realized we haven't got the last line. Then all my strength, then victory won. I shall behold thee, Lord, the living one. That's okay then. Teach me to live, dear Lord, only for thee. As thy disciples lived in Galilee. Then all my struggles o'er, then victory won. I shall behold thee, Lord, the living one. Gracious God, we thank you that you invite us to come to know the living one, as the Israelites were invited to come to know the living one. 
And as you sought to make their life together a means whereby they discovered the truth and where, whereby you blessed them with the truth, so we ask that as we consider some more the truth that you reveal to them, you will write it more uh, on the doorposts of our houses and in the hearts with which we seek to serve you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so I'm going to, uh, we're going to look tonight at um, some aspects uh, in general terms about the way in which the law impacts us and some particular looks at Deuteronomy. <clears throat> and I'm starting on page 117 where it says factors that shape Israel's rule for life. Do you agree with me about that number? Does that sound all right? Factors that shape Israel's rule for life. Uh, and you need the kind of, the print, um, what do we call it, view, because uh, you should be able to see a kind of pair of axes in the middle, which you won't be able to see if you're just looking at the ordinary word processing view. But you should be able to see if you're looking at the print view, yes? Blank looks, anybody know what I'm talking about? Somebody's nodded to me. Somebody's there. Yes. I'm looking blank. Where are we? Let's, okay, let's go back slowly. I think it's page 117. Will you confirm that for me, sister? Thank you. And at the top it says, factors that shape Israel's rule for life. And underneath, amongst other things, there should be a pair of axes like that. Is that what you call... Is that what, that's axes, isn't it? Okay, you'll agree with me that that means axes? Yeah, okay. Um, and what that diagram um, is designed to do is to illustrate the way in which one can see in Deuteronomy or elsewhere in the uh, Torah uh, what, why it says the particular things that it says uh, about the, the, the different issues that it raises. What are the factors, if you like, that God is taking in mind uh, in Deuteronomy saying the kind of things that it says. Uh, and what I want to suggest to you is that there are two sets of considerations that are affecting, that are lying behind the kind of things that Deuteronomy or the other law books say. Um, what I put here is the vertical axis and the horizontal axis. So, uh, first the vertical axis, um, where in Deuteronomy as a whole, God is working with uh, two sorts of considerations. One sort of consideration at the top of the diagram is, is the kind of thing that God thinks um, in, in the ideal world. When you're in the Garden of Eden, or when you're on the top of Mount Sinai, or when you're on the top of the, of the Mount of Beatitudes, or when you're on the top of Mount Wilson, up there, and you're able, you're distanced from how things are um, actually in the world, what are the ideals that you think in terms of? Uh, and just under that, just under, underneath that, there's a list of some of those ideals. The things that God thinks are really important. Mono-Yahwism, I'll come back to that in a minute. Fairness, generosity, joy, egalitarianism, separation from the world, beauty, community. There are lots of things that in Deuteronomy express God's ideals. Uh, let me say a bit about that word mono-Yahwism, because 
one or two people in their postings asked about monotheism uh, and whether Israel was monotheistic from the beginning and things like that. Um, and uh, the reason, the reason? Well, yeah, a, a very big reason why that's a confusing kind of question is that monotheism it's, isn't really a category that the Old Testament works with or for that matter really that the New Testament works with. The idea of monotheism is that there's only one God. But neither the Old Testament nor the New Testament is very interested in how many gods there are, whether there's one or three or 17 or 197. Um, what they are interested in is who is God and who you treat as God. And from the beginning to the end of the Old Testament, then, it's not very concerned about how many gods there are. It's concerned with the question, who is God, which is a different sort of question. And it's concerned throughout to declare that Yahweh is God. Uh, indeed, in that passage from Deuteronomy 6 that I read just now, uh, it's important that Yahweh is the only God. But, but it's, it's got, I would actually say, a bigger question than the question about monotheism in mind. It's not merely interested in how many gods there are. It's interested in who is this God. It's interested in, in, in the Israelites affirming the truth that Yahweh alone is the person who really counts as God. So in um, that declaration early on in Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is the, the key statement of faith for any Jew today, it declares, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh alone. Now, um, I've missed out the verb uh, in that sentence, the, the two verbs, no, the one verb that the NRSV puts in that sentence. The NRSV has got, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Um, because there isn't a verb in that sentence, they, uh, in Hebrew, you can have sentences without verbs. Now, when you write your paper, if you write sentences without verbs, I shall complain. Unless your paper is written in Hebrew, in which case it will take me... Yes, thank you very much. It'll take me a long time to grade it, too. So please don't. Um, but in Hebrew, there is such a thing as a verbless sentence or a noun, a noun sentence or a noun clause. So you can simply, um, you don't, you, they, they, in effect, they haven't got a word for is or am. So instead of saying, I am John Goldingay, I would say in Hebrew, I, John Goldingay. Now, that, normally that works fine, but when you've got a complicated select, um, <laughs> sequence uh, of expressions, as in this verse, in order for that to work in English, you don't know where to put the, where to put the is. So the NRSV has one run at the question in its main text, but it's got about three alternative versions in the margin. So is it, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, or the Lord our God is one Lord, or the Lord our God, the Lord is one, or the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Well, there are probably other possibilities you could think of. Uh, it doesn't make clear where the is is, but it does make clear that the Lord is one, right? That Yahweh is one. There's only one God uh, as far as Israel is concerned. And there's only one entity, one supernatural entity, who really deserves the, expression, the description, God. Now, the Old Testament is quite happy to refer to other supernatural beings um, by using uh, the word Elohim, which is also the word for God. So, it, again, we have ways of making that distinction. Um, if when we're talking about the other supernatural beings, 
we would say Elohim equals God, equals gods. But when we're talking about the, the one God, we'd say uh, Elohim is God with a big G. We have ways of making that distinction. Hebrew doesn't have ways of making that distinction. So it, it sometimes can look a bit worrying. You can always tell, well, 99 times out of 100, you can tell whether this word Elohim means gods or God. Because if it means gods, it takes a plural verb. Uh, and if it, take, if it means God, it takes a singular verb. But the, the fact that, it can, that, that Hebrew can use that word Elohim in those two different ways uh, reflects the awareness that, that God isn't alone there in heaven. Well, perhaps just the three of them. right? Uh, but they didn't know that, so as far as they, they would be concerned, it would only be the one of them. God doesn't sit there on his own. There's lots of characters uh, in heaven, apart from God with a big G. But none of them count as God with a big G. In our terms, they're all supernatural beings or heavenly beings or angels or something like that. We wouldn't call them gods. Um, in, uh, in the way that Hebrew works, it's quite happy to refer to them as, as we would put it, gods with a small g. But the fact that it uses the same word doesn't alter the fact that the Israelites knew, or at least they were supposed to know, that there was this one person, Yahweh, who was so different from all these other gods that he didn't really count as the same kind of being at all. They could be born and could die. They could be subject to judgment. They could do the wrong thing. They were subordinate to Yahweh. But there's only one Yahweh, only one God who really counts as Yahweh. So by implication, a passage like Deuteronomy 6 is assuming that there is only one God. It's assuming monotheism. But, but to put it that way is to work with a different framework from the one that it's working with and to miss the distinctiveness of the point that it wants to make. The point it wants to make is not there is only one God. The point it wants to make is Yahweh is the only God. Um, and uh, in order to underline that fact, uh, the um, clumsy and ugly expression mono-Yahwism uh, helps one to see that we're not talking about monotheism, which is a kind of theoretical idea that, that, that in post-New Testament times, um, Greek thinking uh, thought in terms of. Uh, in Greek thinking, the question was, is there some one principle behind the whole of being? And so the idea that there should be only one of those came to be important in Christian thinking because it was important in Greek thinking. When in doubt, blame the Greeks for everything, <laughs> with apologies for any Greeks who are present. Uh, if there are any Greeks present, then when in doubt, blame the English for everything. <laughs> Why? Well, they tried to kind of control what happened in this country, didn't they? You, you ask me why? Do you have an American passport? You're a citizen? As if. <laughs> the implication um, of the Old Testament is that there is only one God, but that's not the question it's interested in. The question it's interested in all the way through is, or the, the statement, the conviction it's expressing all the way through is, Yahweh is the only God. And, it's, and, and it's, it, it, it believes that from the very beginning right to the end. The Old Testament does. Now, what the Israelites that believed, that was a totally different question. But the Israelites were quite often went off and worshipped Baals and things like that. Uh, but as far, as far as the Old Testament is concerned, the thing that you're supposed to believe is that Yahweh um, is the only person who really deserves the title God. So, mono-Yahwism, along with fairness and generosity and joy and egalitarianism and separation and beauty and community 
uh, is among the kind of things that sitting in the Garden of Eden or on the top of Mount Sinai or on the Mount of Beatitudes or on the top of Mount Wilson, God reckons are really important. But God also has to deal with the realities as they are, as at the, uh, underneath the bottom of that axis, the realities of how things are at the bottom of Mount Sinai or at the bottom of Mount Wilson. So when God looks down from Mount Sinai or from the mountains in Moab, as is actually the setting in Deuteronomy, uh, and looks at the lives of the Israelites, or when God looks down uh, at what, how the Israelites are um, in their actual uh, lives in Canaan, then what God sees is marriage breakdown, servitude, poverty, patriarchy. When God looks down uh, from the top of Mount Wilson at the L.A. Basin, what God sees is marriage breakdown. Racism, poverty, pollution. And in divine grace, what God then does is not simply say again louder uh, the things that are important when you, on the, when you sit on the top of Mount Wilson or the top of Mount Sinai, but make allowance for how things are um, in the L.A. basin or at the bottom of Mount Sinai. Um, and the permission... The, the, the acceptance of the notion of divorce, for instance, in Deuteronomy 24 is an example of that. One of you on your posting said, why did God make it so easy um, to have divorce? You know, just, you just need the slightest excuse. If, you, if your husband, if the husband dislikes um, his wife, he can just divorce her. That's because God is being realistic. That's because, as Jesus puts it, God is working with the fact of human hardness of heart. Um, God's ideal is... Um, monogamous, lifelong um, marriage, but God knows that marriages break down. And so God doesn't just leave the Israelites um, on their own to deal with that situation. God has some uh, rules that will help to um, get some control uh, in where, given the fact that, for instance, marriage breakdown is a reality, that, um, that servitude is a reality, people's farms are not working and needing help. Poverty is a reality. Patriarchy is a reality. Racism is a reality. Pollution is a reality. So, so God works with the tension between those two. Um, there is a great African-American writer called Stephen Carter, who until a year or two ago I hoped might be the first black uh, American president. But for better or for worse, he showed no interest in the... Uh, Possibility. Unfortunately, another god, another another guy showed up, uh, so we did okay in the end. Um, Stephen Carter seems, to, who's a, a an evangelical professor of law at Yale, I think, um, and also perhaps this is another reason why, why, well, a reason why he didn't want to be the, to be the president is that he likes writing novels. It's amazing these guys. You know, it makes you feel really inferior. These people. He's a professor of. Law, Yale, and he writes best-selling novels. Um, and he's just got another one out, actually. I saw an advert in the New York Times uh, book review thing last weekend for it. Um, uh, now, as an African-American, he's entitled to, uh, to talk about the significance uh, of um, slavery um, and, and, about the and about the possibility of compromise with regard to slavery of, of a kind in a way that you get, in one sense, within the uh, laws, but also um, in, within U.S. history. 
In an 1860 speech, Lincoln compares slavery to a venomous snake. One would have the right to kill it with a stick in the road, he says, but perhaps one would not have the same right to kill it if found in a bed where children are sleeping, because I might hurt the children more than the snake, which is why slavery could continue for a while in the South. But not in the territories, says Lincoln. But if there was a bed newly made up to which the children were to be taken and it was proposed to take a batch of young snakes and put them there with them, I take it no man would say there was any question how I ought to decide. Carter comments, as a piece of legal and political advocacy, this is a typical Lincoln masterpiece. But how does it measure up against the test of integrity that we're concerned with in this book of his, which is called Integrity? The compromise is apparent. Killing the snake is a value, but so is saving the lives of children. Lincoln's point is to avoid being so obsessed with the first, killing the snake, that we overlook the second, saving the lives of the children. Next, consider Lincoln's approach to the problem of slavery itself. Let's assume that Lincoln's anti-slavery sentiment was genuine and deep. If so, there is little doubt that he came to it as a result of genuine moral reflection. But it need not have, that need not have been the only thing he valued. Preserving the Union was a value too. Suppose for the sake of argument that preserving the Union was a lesser value than abolishing slavery. Still, one could argue that by making some compromises on the issue of slavery, Lincoln was able to accomplish both goals. But had he compromised instead on the issue of the Union, he would have accomplished neither. A compromise can possess integrity, provided that it meets a fairly simple test which the Lincoln example suggests. The compromise must move you toward your goal rather than away from it. It must, in other words, be part of the strategy for attaining the end that discernment has taught to be good and right. And the individual of integrity, having agreed to compromise, must not pretend that the compromise is itself the end, Instead, he or she must be forthright in announcing that this is but one step along the road and that the journey will continue. Pope John Paul II recognized this point in his 1995 encyclical Evangelium Vitae, The Gospel of Life. In answering the question of whether it is morally acceptable for pro-life politicians to support legislation that reduces the number of abortions but does not ban them, he says, when it is not possible to overturn or completely abrogate a pro-abortion law, an elected official whose absolute personal opposition to procured abortion was well known could licitly, properly, uh, ab um, support proposals aimed at limiting the harm done by such a law and at lessening its negative consequences at the level of gen gen general opinion and public morality. This does not in fact represent an illicit cooperation with an unjust law, but rather a legitimate and proper attempt to limit its evil aspects. Then um, Carter again comments, in this the Pope is acknowledging human reality. Rarely can any of us achieve our moral ends perfectly or all at once. Integrity will at times require that we take what we can get. We often think of compromise as a bad thing. Carter is there arguing that compromise can be a good thing subject to the kind of considerations he's outlining. What I'm adding is that if you're God, it doesn't make any difference. Um, you, 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 your God isn't actually in a position um, 
at least in keeping with, with, his, with other priorities of his, simply to impose the right thing on the world. And so God compromises. God lives with the realities as they are um, at the bottom uh, of the mountain, uh, as well as with the ideals that God has uh, at the top of the mountain. Um, and that then fits with those other notes that I put at the bottom of the diagram there. Um, as, a, as a student once put it in a posting, his scripture is inspired. Why is it so sexist? Because, again, God is dealing with the reality of patriarchy at the bottom uh, of the mountain and seeking to pull, uh, in Old and New Testaments, humanity a little bit nearer God's vision at the top of the mountain. Um, and, and that's... Uh, why, likewise, God makes allowance for the reality of slavery as well as of servitude uh, in constraining what it's allowed to be uh, and not simply uselessly saying, don't do it. So that's one reason why the laws work the way they do. It's because they, they, are, they are all somewhere on that axis between how things are at the top of the mountain and how they are at the bottom of the mountain. The then there's the horizontal axis what I've called contextual givens and contextual vehicles. What I mean by that is this. Uh, um, think about the contextual givens uh, against which the, in the context of which the laws in the Old Testament uh, are declared. Uh, for instance, they have flat roofs. Now, uh, in England, uh, we don't have flat roofs, hard, hardly at all. We nearly always have pitched roofs. Uh, and therefore, the, uh, the law that says you must um, build a wall around your roof seems really stupid to an English person. It's very sensible now I live in a part now I live in an apartment block that has a flat roof and I can go up there in order to kind of I don't know see why the air conditioning isn't working and I could fall over the side. It was very sensible in uh, the house we once stayed in in Israel that was similar where you played table tennis on the roof. Uh, well I mean you know the kids could fall off. It's, it's a very, it turns out to be a very sensible rule in the context of um, houses with flat roofs. It's a barter economy, is the um, economy that the Old Testament presupposes. You have the important relationship between the pastoral and the urban. There are givens about the context that the laws all, always have to speak to. And in our context, then likewise, we need to deal with the givens of the context, um, like uh, multi-ethnicity. Uh, and informality, and the importance of technology. The other end of that horizontal axis, I've put what I've called contextual vehicles. That is, things that are there in the context, which are uh, ethically, theologically pretty neutral, uh, but which then God can harness uh, in order to make the expression of God's vision, uh, of implementing God's vision. I have suggested to you, um, uh, to the astonishment of some of you, uh, that sacrifice wasn't something that was God's idea. I pointed out that it was Cain and Abel's idea. Tithes weren't something that were, was directly, I mean, not, not in the sense of a, of a special revelation. Tithes weren't originally a subject of special revelation. They were something which was apparently natural uh, in the cultural context. The same is actually true of Sabbath, not in the sense of the weekly Sabbath, which... Um, as far as we know, was peculiar to Israel. But the idea that there were certain days that were days of rest um, on some kind of um, 
recurrent but, but not weekly basis. That's around in the culture too. So God takes contextual vehicles, what t- takes things out of the context, which can become vehicles of God's uh, teaching, God's will being implemented in the world. God can take hold of the notion of Sabbath or tithe or sacrifice and utilize it in order to um, teach and implement God's purpose. In our, in our context, uh, how, it, how important uh, are the movies and how important is music and how important is the theater? Those are things that we can take hold of, that God can take hold of, and utilize in order to be means of God's purpose being implemented in the world. That would be cool instead of them being the opposite, wouldn't it? Now again, if you look at... um, Microphone's not working. Um, Sorry? The black one. No, only one of them is a microphone. The black one. Is that a microphone? Um, I'll go and uh, have a look at the thingy. Is that the microphone? Is that better? And there was no answer. No. Is that better? Ah, right. The battery looked all right when I started. No, the battery doesn't affect the... Oh, this technology. The battery doesn't affect the microphone. It only affects the iTunes thing. But if you can hear me now, it means at least one recording is working. Um, Where was I? Music, movies, yes, that's right, yeah. That, that in principle then, anything within Deuteronomy or anywhere else within the Torah, you can plot um, in relation to those axes. Uh, you can ask the question, is this something that looks as if it's expressing God's ideals or is this something that's making big allowance for human um, fallibility? And according to how you see it in relation to those, will be how far up and down the uh, vertical axis you put it. And then, is this God using something out of the context um, that can be a means of teaching? And how does that relate to contextual uh, givens about the context that God needs to speak to? And in light of the way you see that, then you can plot it somewhere in relation to the horizontal axis. Um, So... Uh, I've meant Deuteronomy 6 5 is that is the at the very top is the verse about that I was talking about just now that's um, loving Lord that's um, hero as well the Lord your God is one Lord uh, whereas Deuteronomy 24 at the bottom of that vertical axis is the um, divorce uh, certificate regulation which isn't giving permission to, for divorce it's laying down how you cope with the consequences of divorce and then Deuteronomy 22.4 on the right-hand side near the top is, you shall not see your neighbor's donkey or ox fallen on the road and ignore it. You shall help to lift it up. Now, that's near the top because it's saying an ideal, but it's, but it's towards the left because it's making um, allowance for the fact that it's donkey and o- donkeys and oxes that count in the context. So uh, when you see your neighbor, uh, your enemy's car 
has got a flat tire. That doesn't mean you can ignore it because Deuteronomy doesn't talk about cars having flat tires because your car is the equivalent to your donkey. It goes at about the same speed um, in the rush hour too. Um, on the other hand, the, the Deuteronomy 22.10 one about not playing with an ox and a donkey yoked together um, is using some assumptions out of a traditional context about not, not mixing things um, as a means uh, of teaching, uh, li living in accordance with God's creation ideals. But it's using those things out of the context, what can be contextual vehicles. Factors that shape Israel's rule for life. Uh, anybody want to say, ask about that or say anything about it? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, because because the there are other peoples who have something like a Sabbath, who have Sabbaths, not a weekly Sabbath, but who have some days in the month that are days when you don't do anything, taboo days. So it looks as if God, in that in that with regard to Sabbath too, God is picking something out of the picking up something out of the context, uh, but then doing something fresh with it. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure what you mean by that. Well, sacrificing tithes, you can look at Eden and say, well, those didn't occur there. They came after. Why? Well, I don't see sacrificing tithing. It's not mentioned, but I mean, presumably, if, uh, if, the, if it hadn't been for humanity going wrong, they would have sacrificed in Eden, I assume. Right. But, uh, yeah. That's an assumption that Sabbath we can see that it actually happened in the garden. Well, we can't say that human beings did it, did it. God did it, but it doesn't say that human beings observed it. Oh, not. Uh, well, some. Yeah, uh, I'm hypo. I, um, sometimes, I mean, sometimes, as you've seen in looking at the Ten Commandments today, for today, that one of the versions of the Ten Commandments looks back to God's act of creation; the other one doesn't. Um, so, so sometimes they would think in that framework. Sometimes, sometimes, sometimes they wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Well, because the, the contextual givens are all things which um, there's nothing wrong with. That's what I mean. Yeah. I mean, you're obviously right. It is a contextual given, but that by the contextual givens, that they weren't things that were I was being pejorative about that were that were uh, not ideals. Well, now, if you turn over the page, turn over to the next page, page one one eight, where it says at the top, Quanzar um, and halfway down Halloween. Um, uh, you can see a process uh, of, you can see there examples of things out of a culture which, which could uh, become expressions um, of biblical concerns or could go in the opposite direction. Uh, on the one hand, Kwanzaa uh, as um, a, a cultural holiday for African Americans uh, after Christmas a celebration of African-American culture, 
um, commemorates and reflects seven principles of an, of an African value system which have some overlap uh, with those of scripture reflecting as I do um, the values of a traditional society. Uh, unity, self-determination, collective work and responsibility, cooperative, cooperative economics and familyhood, purpose, creativity, faith. You can see thus how if you were a Christian in an African-American context, or for that matter in an East African context, you could learn from, utilize, work with a collection of concerns like that. They, would, they, they could be pushing you towards something more like God's concerns. There's a kind of opposite with Halloween. As I put there, Halloween apparently goes back to the pre-Christian. This is again, it's the it's the it's Britain's fault. Uh, Halloween apparently goes back to the pre-Christian Celtic festival of Samhain, which marked the New Year on November the first. The celebration marked the beginning of the season of cold, darkness, and decay. Oh yes, how great! It was just wonderful to come back to Los Angeles last Sunday. Um, and the festival on the previous night, October the thirty-first, honoured the Lord of Death, Samhain allowed the souls of the dead to return home for this evening. When the Romans conquered Britain, their festival in honor of the dead was combined with Samhain. When the gospel came to Britain, the church established November the 1st as All Saints Day, while October the 31st became All Souls Day, All Hallows Eve, therefore Halloween. Customs from the old festival thus came to be associated with Christian celebrations. Uh, now there you can see um, the, the Christians in Britain trying to do that thing of utilizing things out of the context uh, in order to make Christian points. When settlers from Britain first came to America as people of strict religious beliefs, they did not bring these customs with them. But the customs came to be imported from Britain in the 19th century when there were new waves of immigration from Scotland and Ireland. Ah, it's the Scottish and the Irish, it's not the English. But now they're being imported back to England. That is, when our kids were little, we didn't have Halloween. We had bonfire night instead. But now Halloween is kind of taking over from bonfire night in Britain. Uh, and we've lost All Saints Day. Uh, now, you, what I'm suggesting there is you can see the, the trickiness, the potential value, uh, but also the potential danger that's involved when you're interacting with things in the culture. Uh, and you actually see something similar with regard to Mother's Day and Father's Day. Um, in, in Britain, uh, we didn't have Mother's Day, or at least what, what it was more commonly known as Mothering Sunday. It was a Sunday in the middle of Lent, uh, an occasion, um, it was a kind of relaxed time for relaxation in the middle of Lent, when girls who were in service um, to some um, stately home, some lord or lady, were allowed to go home and see their mum for the afternoon. Um, hence it was Mothering Sunday. Uh, you've never had that here. You had Mother's Day instead, which is a different kind of uh, ethos. Um, but the atmosphere of Mother's Day uh, has come to uh, dominate the notion of uh, Mother's Day in Britain. We never had Father's Day. When I was a, a young father, we never got anything on Father's Day. Uh, but now Father's Day likewise. Obviously, it's in Hallmark's interest to um, export uh, Father's Day to Britain, and that's also happened. Um, and, and in churches, 
uh, their uh, occasions like Mother's Day and Father's Day can be more important than distinctively Christian occasions in the year. There's a very tricky uh, set of questions raised by the way in which we relate to culture and the way in which easily a process whereby uh, we utilize elements out of the culture in order to be vehicles of Christian teaching becomes instead a process whereby the Christian teaching is subordinated to the things out of the culture. Um, over the page again to page 119, what I've called a biblical vision for society. Uh, and this relates again to some things that some people, in effect, to some questions that people um, raised in their postings. Is there an alternative to the market-driven capitalism we have in the USA or to old-fashioned Marxist socialism? Uh, a guy called Michael Schluter um, suggests that the Old Testament law points towards what he calls relation, relationism uh, based on, the, for instance, the laws about jubilee and not charging interest and the welfare arrangements. The foundation of the state should be the mutual commitment of regions or sections of society, binding them together for good or ill, with a commitment to dispute resolution rather than force or withdrawal. The extended family should be given a maximum role, including economic support, welfare, and nurture and education of children. All families should have geographic roots in a particular location and a permanent stake in property. Land is not primarily an asset, but a source of roots. Surplus money should be channeled within families and communities, not invested just to make more money. Crime should be seen as a breakdown of relationships between offender and victim and community, rather than as an offense against the state. The power of central government should be restrained so that people are involved in decisions governing their lives. National unity is to be built on a national system of law, education, and medicine informed by shared values, rather than on military or executive centralization. Now, again, one of the people asked in their postings, um, somebody asked rather poignantly, how on earth could we do anything of that kind, of the kind that Deuteronomy set a vision for? Um, and I think in the posting that where the person asked this question, they raised the question about the church. Um, now, I can reconcile myself, just about, to the idea that it's a pretty far-fetched notion that the um, nation should take over a vision like that. But isn't it grievous that it's difficult to imagine the church taking on a vision like that? And it reminds me of a story that um, I think John Yoda tells um, about an occasion in Evanston uh, in Chicago when uh, there was a Christian group discussing how they could uh, stop um, housing uh, being um, uh, I'm not sure what, I can't remember what the term is for this, but arranging that there were certain areas where African Americans could live um, and certain areas where African Americans couldn't live. And they were discussing how they could press the um, local government uh, to stop that, to integrate housing. And somebody pointed out uh, that most of the realtors and most of the people who owned houses were Christians. Um, but then it was agreed that you couldn't expect the Christians to go in for integration of that kind unless they were compelled um, by the uh, state. 
Well, excuse me. Um, I don't know how we uh, go about um, persuading the church to become Christian. Uh, but uh, I... I I, uh, and maybe that's why I'm a professor, because it means I don't have to do it. I only have to persuade you. Um, but I suggest that if we are serious about reckoning this is the word of God, then it has revolutionary implications for what um, Stanley Howas calls the church being an alternative community. Um, and uh, the bigger the church then the more the possibility there ought to be uh, for the church embodying an alternative way of being human community that, w- that would express some of these kind of ideals that God has as God sits there on the top of Mount Wilson looking down at us in grief. Um, the bottom half of that page, a President's Vision for the USA, uh, I actually came across before the... Um, the Michael Schluter piece at the top of the page, but it has interesting overlaps with it. Uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt's State of the Union speech in January 1944, um, proposing that people should have the right to a useful and remunerative job in the industries or shops or farms or mines of the nation, the right to earn enough to provide adequate food and clothing and recreation, the right of every farmer to raise and sell his products to return that will give him and his family a decent living the right of every businessman, large and small, to trade in an atmosphere of freedom from unfair competition and domination by monopolies at home or abroad, the right of every family to a decent home, the right to adequate medical care and the opportunity to achieve and enjoy good health, the right to adequate protection from the economic fears of old age, sickness, accidents and unemployment, the right to a good education. Uh, And the author of the New York York Times op-ed piece um, that quoted that commented, During the 1950s and the 1960s, the nation made substantial progress towards these goals before momentum slowed with the war in Vietnam and the election of Richard Nixon. Okay, let's have uh, five minutes in which you talk with one another about what what about that strikes you um, and any ways in which you can see that um, impacting church, making a difference to the church. Talk to one another about that for five minutes. Are you an Ethiopian? I'm going to show a bit of a film about Ethiopia. Are you coming on Wednesday?
you coming to class on Wednesday? You don't think so? Oh, that's a shame, because I'm going to show a bit of an Ethiopian film on Wednesday. Is that your dad? No, I'll tell him. I'm sorry? I thought you probably were. You have to bring him Wednesday because I'm going to show a bit of an Ethiopian film. You are? Yeah. Which one? It's called Live and Become, I think it's called. Oh, I've heard about that. Oh, it's fabulous. I haven't seen it, but I've heard uh, well, I'll lend it. I mean, I'll lend the DVD. It's just yeah, fabulous. Well, yeah, if he doesn't come, it's okay, but I'm, I'll lend it to you. Are you going to show the whole thing? No, no just, just, a just a tiny bit. Okay. So, um, yeah. Yeah, Okay, people, you've had it.
Okay, okay, okay. True. Yeah. Can you see those two A's? That wouldn't you? Doesn't he worry you? Those two TAs at the back there in striped shirts, horizontal striped shirts, looking like heavies. Because if you're going to be in deep, yeah, it's kind of would worry me if I was a student. Yeah. So. Hmm. Uh, I'm sorry. The prospects. The prospects. The prospect. No, I was just worried. Worried about. I don't know what it worried about me. It's just kind of. They look like, I don't know what it is. It must be taking me back, me back to some nasty childhood experience. Um, let me, I want to talk a bit about using Old Testament law um, in, relation, uh, in principle. So I'm back to page 114, where it says at the top, using Old Testament law 1, which will be followed in a minute by using Old Testament law 2. That's surprising, isn't it? Using Old Testament law. And what I've done here is given you the names of six guys... Uh, three from the uh, early Christian centuries and three from the Reformation time, who've got different attitudes to the, to the significance um, of Old Testament law. Roughly, the range covered by the three um, early church guys and the three Reformation guys is kind of the same. Um, at least they overlap. And I'm comparing them a bit with the attitudes that some people take today. So first three guys from the earliest church. Uh, first, Marcion, who you know is a bad guy. Uh, whose principle with regard to looking at the Old Testament is be critical. Um, and in a way, you can't, um, you can't say he's totally wrong because I've already pointed you to the passage in Mark 10 uh, where Jesus is critical. Not critical on the basis of that in talking about um, the divorce law and uh, it being given for your hardness of hearts. Um, if you look for someone today who takes Marcion's kind of view, then... Uh, David Kleins will be somebody who comes a bit close to that. Um, the danger of the critical view is that of being dismissive um, of what the law has got to say. Another uh, angle from the early church, that of origin, um, who, who I've said um, you can sum up by saying, be imaginative. Um, and here's an example of the kind of imaginative uh, stance that he takes from uh, within the New Testament itself. It is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Now, when you ask a question like that, the important thing is not to leave a gap, um, because you may get the wrong answer. <laughs> or does he not, so, so Paul hurries on by saying, uh, or does he not speak entirely for our sake? I don't think so, actually, Paul. Uh, it was indeed written for our sake, for, who, for whoever plows should plow in hope, whoever threshes should thresh in hope of a share in the crop. Um, is, if we have sown spiritual good among you, is it too much if we reap your material benefits? Here is uh, Paul exercising his imagination on the significance of that Old Testament text about oxen in order to say uh, it's, about, um, it's significant for the uh, question whether or not it's okay for pastors to be paid. Uh, nowadays, for somebody who's imaginative in his, in his use of the Old Testament, uh, I could mention Walter Brueggemann uh, described the way he... Works through the, the way the Old Testament talks about Sabbath, for instance, and he's very good then at making intuitive leaps, um, which is what you could say Origen or Paul are doing with regard to the significance of Old Testament law. The danger is don't spiritualize. 
don't miss out on the literal concern that God apparently has for animals in Deuteronomy um, out of your concern to prove a point about God's concern for pastors being paid. Uh, and then Chrysostom, who is the kind of opposite of origin, really, who you could say um, he is committed to being, being literal, and a good example of that within the New Testament uh, would be the account of the first um, great um, synod or council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, when they taught us to try to sort out on the basis of what the Torah has got to say, what should be Christian's attitude um, to uh, keeping the law. Nowadays, somebody who is uh, very good at seeking to see the literal significance of the law, uh, Chris Wright in his book, Old Testament Ethics for the People of God, about whom I'll say more in a minute. The danger is don't be legalistic. See, each of these stances has got some strength and some potential weakness. Then three from the Reformation period. Jim, did I do all right in that? Do you want to contradict me? Tell me, put me right. He's the expert you see on these guys. I'm very scared. That's why I'm scared. I'm scared. I've got a, I've got a, a therapist and an early church expert in the back row. It's really worrying. Thank you. Whew. Uh, nobody here knows anything about the Reformation? <laughs> Luther, be historical. That is, this Old Testament law, it wasn't given to you. Moses didn't say it to you. So why should you think it obliges you? Luther kind of, uh, is a, a, in, in effect, lays the foundation for dispensationalism. If you don't know what that is, it tells you at the bottom. Uh, it's what uh, is expounded in the Schofield Bible. For instance, the idea that there are seven dispensations of God's dealing with the world. There is a time of innocence in Genesis 1 to 2, the time of conscience, Genesis 3 to 8, the time of government, Genesis 9 to 11, the time of patriarchal rule, Genesis 12 to Exodus 19, the time of the law, Acts 20 to Acts, uh, Exodus 20 to Acts 1, the time of grace, the church age, and then the millennium. The great thing about dispensationalism is that it says that the Sermon on the Mount is the rule for the age of the kingdom, whereas we're in the church age, and therefore we don't have to obey the Sermon on the Mount. Isn't that great? Uh, Luther then is, is sort of dispensationalist in saying, that law, that was given to the Israelites. It, didn't, it, it wasn't given to Christians. Romans 10.4, Christ is the end of the law. Somebody talks in those terms now, James Dunn. The danger of that, though, is that if you're going to say all that belongs to a different age, then you've got no, you, you for, you're abandoning all the potential in what the Torah has got to say for the governance of our life. You end up being vague. Love God and do what you like. The opposite of that is Calvin, who you could say is concerned to be practical. Um, uh, Ephesians chapter 6 is an example uh, of a passage that um, assumes that it's okay, that it's a good idea to support teaching towards Christians uh, by quoting from the law. Michael Schluter, who is that guy who took, does that stuff about relationalism, is a guy who's tried to work um, hard at that. Um, the danger uh, is don't compromise. That is, don't uh, trim, don't go too far uh, in trimming God's ideals in order that they'll work. Um, and then finally, Menno. Menno of the Mennonites. A good name for a band, that, I think. Menno and the Mennonites. Is there a band called that? Uh, uh. Calvin and the Calvinists, Luther and the Lutherans. Yeah, you can have a go. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Menno, be bold. Uh, taking uh, the exact opposite attitude to the Sermon on the Mount. Let's take it seriously. Nowadays, uh, John Yoder, Glenn Stassen. Uh, the danger 
don't be unrealistic. Um, Glenn isn't unrealistic. Um, he's, he's very good at holding those two together. Um, six different overlapping kind of ways of dealing with the Old Testament law. It's not that any one of them is right and the others are wrong. Uh, all of them, the very fact that I can give support to all of them from the New Testament shows how there's some, uh, you need a, ver a variety of ways of thinking about those issues. Over the page to using Old Testament law 2, page 115, um, here are three sorts of approaches uh, overlapping with some things I've said already. First, work out the meaning of the words and just live by it. It's not so complicated, really. What I call an exegetical approach. It's the classic Jewish approach. Uh, it's also advocated um, by some guys who use, use the word theonomy. Uh, the guys I put, whose names I put there in brackets are a, a particular evangelical Christian version of theonomy. The, the, the word theonomy, uh, uh, the notion of God's law ruling us, um, is used uh, by some other theologians in other sorts of ways. But the Reconstructionist or the theonomy movement in the United States uh, is associated with uh, guys such as Barnson and Rushdoon, uh, who reckon that we should simply see what the law says, and then that's what the United States um, law ought to say. It ought to follow what the Torah says. They do shuffle their feet a bit at the uh, uh, number of things for which you have to execute people, fortunately. Uh, but that does show, um, uh, and that does show a weakness in the approach. Uh, so, um, let's ask, what count as work on the Sabbath? Is it work on the Sabbath to turn um, your uh, oven on? Well, it might be, so I'll put the timer on the previous day and then I won't actually be doing anything on the day. Do I tithe net, do I tithe net or gross? Um, Jews, uh, Orthodox Jews are very concerned to avoid mixing milk and meat in order to not leave you the slightest possibility of cooking a kid goat in its own mother's milk. Work out the meaning of the words and just live by it. It's not that complicated. Or, number two, take the law as a given and apply it in a new way. Uh, what I've here called the right brain approach, but what you could put more spiritually as the insights the Holy Spirit gives. Um, Walter Brueggemann's stuff on the Sabbath, my stuff on the tithes, uh, is an example of that. Note how, uh, even within the Old Testament then, the observance of the Sabbath or the, um, keeping, the, the, the offering of tithes isn't a law in a legalistic kind of way. Then thirdly, look for principles behind uh, the rules in the Torah and seek to re-embody them. And I've called this a left-brain approach, which thus complements number two. Because, okay, supposing somebody like Walter Brueggemann or me or some other guy says, this is what tithes ought to mean now, or this is what Sabbath ought to mean now. Who says? Uh, it's, it's, uh, it has the, the strength and the drawback uh, of something which uh, claims to be a word of prophecy. Uh, okay, something new is being said to the context. That's terrific. But how do you know it really comes from God? And, and part of the answer is that the use of a more of a left-brain approach helps you to test whether things that people say on the basis of a right-brain approach really do come from God. 
that's the basis upon which you could say that what Paul does with the um, not muzzling the ox text in Corinthians is okay. Because if you ask, um, can we apply a left brain approach to the kind of thing that the Old Testament says about paying ministers and establish that it's okay to pay the minister? Yeah, of course we can. Therefore, it's okay for Paul to use that intuitive right brain uh, approach, jumping from the question about the ox to paying ministers today, because um, you, you can prove your point by, also by the other method. So the left brain approach looks for principles behind rules and seeks to re-embody them. Uh, and you can discover things that way, but you can also use that method in order to check the results of um, the right brain approach. Uh, and this is the um, kind of approach that Chris Wright is very good at. In one of his earlier booklets, books called Walking in the Ways of the Lord, um, he suggests that you ask of any of the laws in the Torah, is this criminal, civil, family, cultic, or compassionate law? What kind of area of life is, is it designed to govern? What is its function in the society? How does it relate to the social system? And what difference would it then make um, in relation to when we think about our context in which we have a monetary society instead of a barter society, in which we have Medicare, uh, in which we have a taxation system? All that makes a difference to the kind of presuppositions of the um, social system in, say, Deuteronomy. What's the objective of the law? What was that law in Deuteronomy seeking to achieve? And then, how can we implement the objective in our new context? And that last question is the really important one. Uh, often people say, oh, the really important thing about Old Testament laws is the principles that lie behind them. And that's, that's, that's half true, but it is only half true. Um, if that had been the whole truth, then presumably God would simply have given us some principles. Um, but what God gave us is principles embodied in concrete um, regulations exhortations because it's in the end it's concretely what you've got to go and do that is what you need to know not what principles should guide you so we um, move seek to move back from the concrete expectations expressed in the Torah to what kind of concerns they express what kind of principles they embody in order then once more to cloak um, to embody those principles in some concrete Exhortations, rules. Um, Chris Wright then formulates all that again uh, in his big book, Old Testament Ethics for the People of God, which is one of the um, great Old Testament books that you ought to have a copy of. What kind of situation was this law trying to promote or prevent? Whose interests was this law aiming to protect? Who would have benefited from this law and why? Whose power was this law trying to restrict and how did it do so? What rights and responsibilities were embodied in this law? What kind of behavior did this law encourage or discourage? What vision of society motivated this law? What moral principles, values or priorities did this law embody or instantiate? What motivation did this law appeal to? What sanction or penalty, if any, was attached to this law? And what does that show regarding its relative seriousness or moral priority? Now, you commonly won't be able to know the answers to all those questions, but if you're lucky, uh, well, you'd be rather unlucky if you found answers to all of them because you'd never stop the study, would you? But you might be able to find the answers to two or three of those and thereby be able to see what significance they might have in a different context.
Um, anybody want to say anything about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, some do because there's at least one Seventh Day Adventist here. Um, who is it? Is it you? Who? Well, it's you. Okay. Tell it. Tell us the. Persuade them all to be Adventists tomorrow, <laughs> or yesterday, or something. Say it again. <laughs> when you follow the Sabbath, you're smarter. That's not a very good argument, really. <laughs> uh, go on, give it, give it, go on, can, can, seriously, give him three sentences as to why they should observe Saturday as the Sabbath. Um, <laughs> All right, then one. Well, there's no justification for calling Sunday the Sabbath to start with, is there? <laughs> Have I got to feed you with all these? Uh, <laughs> I mean, that, it was just the church that decided that Sunday would be the Sabbath. Yeah, you can start there, I think. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. I, I, that's, yeah. The Was it you that talked about in your posting or, uh, about the beauty of the beauty of it? Was it somebody in the posting for today talked about that? Was it you? Yeah. Yes, I only half understood your question, but that's. But, are you an Adventist as well? Okay, right. Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah. I mean, because the, I, I wasn't exactly sure. You talked about the beauty of the, the ritual. Did you use the word ritual? Somebody used the word ritual in their posting about the beauty of the ritual side to it or something. I think, no, I think hmm. I talked, um, What do you mean by that? Oh, I see. The routine, almost like the routine. Uh, and, and, okay, right, yeah. yeah. Um, um, what, what, as I've said earlier in the, in the quarter, what strikes me especially is how important it is in our... Uh, workaholic 24-7-365 kind of culture which Christians and the seminary are at least as involved in as anybody um, I believe God, grieves God's heart um, and, and so I'm kind of I'm thrilled to hear you say it's actually it, it's not which day so much, that's not the, the, the biggest thing is it uh, it's the it's the um, it's the principle of getting out of that terrible thing about our culture that's really important um, and yeah Yes, it was actually. I got in trouble with him because if you're an Adventist, that's terrible because he said, make it, uh, well, we've talked about making it Sunday lunchtime. 
so that somebody who is observing Saturday can then do it on Sunday morning. Um, but that, yes, that, that was part. That was partly not not wholly. It was to do with the logic of the how, how the whole week needed to work. Um, but uh, yeah. Yeah, and that's what the twenty-four hour thing. That's what that, that's what the notion of sundown to sundown say does. It, it's a, it's concrete. Yeah. Mhm. 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 Well, yeah, but then you have to make it take allowance of the fact of Luther's point that God didn't say to us observe the Sabbath. God told the Jewish people to observe the Sabbath. Uh, well, and, th and, th and that's where, uh, in the like, like most things, the, the dispensationalists aren't wholly wrong. Um, Paul, Paul in Colossians talks about not being in bondage to Sabbaths. You see? And so, uh, um, yeah, so... so in, in principle, the idea that you might have a different day uh, from Saturday as the Sabbath uh, would be, um, wouldn't be ruled out by the fact that the Torah says Saturday because God, did, God, God said in the Ten Commandments, um, I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Here are the things you ought to do. And one of them is observe the Sabbath. Now, um, God didn't bring us out of the land of Egypt. Now, God, God adopted us into, a, into, that, into that people, but, but in the direct sense, we are not the people to whom God said that. And so it seems to me that there is room for some um, rethinking of how you might embody the principle that Sabbath embodies. Uh, we ought to stop. We'll, we'll get a chance to come back because we're not going to talk about the commandments later, so we can talk about Sabbath a bit more now, but we must have a 20-minute break now. Okay, right, go away. Come back soon. <laughs>